What can help you take advantage of today's low mortgage rates and save money? Rocket can. You could save hundreds of dollars every month by refinancing with Rocket Mortgage at today's near historic low rates. If your current rate is over 4%, you could lower your payment by over $150 a month, saving thousands in interest every year. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. Savings are based on quick and loans, internal data. Points and fees may apply. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. And analyst consumer access.org number 330. Hey, I'm Dinesh D'Souza, and this is season one, episode one of my new podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about me. Why? Because it's my podcast. And we're going to be talking about impeachment, the second impeachment, round two. They're trying it again. They didn't get him the first time. And we're going to be talking about digital censorship. They want to turn you into a digital non-person. What does that mean? This episode is sponsored by MyPillow, MyPillow.com. We'll be right back. D'Souza, and um, I'm really, well, I'm excited. Uh, I'm a little nervous, but I'm also fired up over this new podcast. And um, it's a podcast in which I'm going to let it all go. I'm going to be Dinesh Unchained, if you will. I'm going to tell it like I see it. And there couldn't be a better time for it because our country is, well, it seems like it's in free fall. For a while now, it looks like our institutions, one by one, have been disintegrating. Disintegrating at least in terms of their basic uh, credibility. Can we really trust the media? Really? Uh, Can we trust the police agencies of government, which appear to have been uh, corrupted from the top? Can we really trust our educational institutions, which seem to be Um, indoctrinating students in one uh, big lie after another. There is uh, really a desperate need, I think, for trust and for truth, and also for new forms of media that, that will provide that, because truth itself now hangs in the balance. This isn't just about Trump. It isn't just about the Republican Party. It's, it is about those things, but it's also about the country It's also about the integrity of language. It's about what is true and what is not true. And what happens when fiction itself begins to parade in the garb of truth. I want this podcast to be uh, a truth-telling podcast, uh, fearless in the way that it confronts the world. Uh, And We're also on our own side, faced with the danger, I would say, of what do we believe? What's a conspiracy and what's not? Uh, Conspiracy theories abound. How do we tell the difference between a conspiracy and, or a conspiracy theory, and perhaps an actual conspiracy? Now, I want to say a word about why people believe in conspiracy theories. They believe in conspiracy theories because 
they have seen crazy things happen recently that have caused even normal people to lose what they thought was their firm foothold, their firm hold uh, on the truth. First, uh, they have seen a, a deep state mobilization against Trump. I mean, who would have thought these so-called neutral agencies of government like the FBI, the CIA, foreign intelligence agencies in Britain and Australia, the whole idea that these people could be somehow mobilized to do surveillance, uh, entrapment, uh, try to get Trump and have been trying it for four years. I mean, this is literally unbelievable. Uh, most of us got our ideas about the FBI from the, the untouchables. Uh, and now suddenly we're forced to confront the fact that these police agencies have been corrupted. Now, second, uh, voter shenanigans. We may not know the full extent of these voter shenanigans, but even the left admits they were there. Voter fraud is not something that is made up. It's not an illusion. There are all kinds of people who, are, who have passed away uh, who somehow show up on the voter rolls. There are people from out of state who show up on the voter rolls. Um, there was testimony in multiple states about this. Um, there were allegations, admittedly allegations, about the vulnerability of the machines, the machines uh, plugged into the internet, machines that presumably uh, could uh, program the way in which votes were stacked or counted. So all of this swirling around us, and I think the frustration of many people is this case, these allegations, these fears, were never really aired. Of course, the left-wing media dismissed them at the outset. There's nothing to see here, folks. Let's move along. We expected that. But we also expected that the Trump team would be able to present in some legitimate forum, some legitimate legal forum, or some legitimate political forum, and some sort of adjudication, some sort of trial, some sort of hearing would take place. Let's see what you got put it all out there, and then the other side gets to dispute them. And the American people, the ultimate jury, but also uh, the judges, if that's the proper forum, or our political leaders, if that's the uh, proper forum. So the issue isn't procedural. You know, the Supreme Court in dismissing the Texas case basically goes, well, you don't have standing. And the idea here is that you're not the right person to sue. It's almost as if to say, well, Tom, you shouldn't have sued. It should have been Dick or it should have been Harry. Well, okay. But whoever should have sued, we want to hear the case. Did the guy break into the bank? Was the burglary actually committed? Or is it merely alleged? And is the, are the charges without merit? So when the Supreme Court said, we're not the guys to do it, and the state legislature said, in effect, we're not the guys to do it, a lot of people thought, well, where else do we turn if not to the Congress? That's the only branch left. And when Congress says, we're not going to do it really either, we're not going to consider the substance of these allegations, well, that begins to fuel conspiracy theories. Who's in on it? Are these people all talking to each other? Does nobody want to hear the case? Who has an interest in blocking the case from being heard? And then on top of that, so we've talked about the deep state, we've talked about voter fraud, and now I turn to the third, censorship, digital 
censorship that is now out in the open. It's naked. It's blatant. Uh, and it's, it's censorship of the President of the United States, itself a startling fact, because Trump remains and is now the President. So the President is prevented from communicating with the American people through social media. Let's think about that. This would almost be like a generation ago, you can't use the phone. You can't use, you can't use the means available to you to share information with people, including your own supporters. That's being blocked by some third party, a third party that is clearly in bed with the other side. And beyond the Trump censorship, there's a censorship of all kinds of people who are being restricted, shadow banned, their accounts canceled, their reach limited, and on absurd pretexts. In my own case, I got a notification a few weeks ago from Facebook. This was based upon the fact that I posted a meme uh, of Joe Biden just quoting him, saying Antifa is merely an idea. Direct quote from Joe Biden. The quote is not adjusted or manipulated in any way. It is merely exhibited for people to see. And Facebook puts a notification on it that goes, lacking context. Really? What's the context? Is there a longer speech from Joe Biden and I merely pulled this quote? No, that's exactly what he said. There is, there is no missing context. Am I supposed to say that Joe, these are not Joe Biden's final thoughts or comprehensive thoughts on Antifa? He has many other valuable things to say? No, I was merely quoting the guy. And, and what makes the whole thing maddening, I think, is that with normal companies, uh, you can file a protest. Right? If United Airlines cancels my ticket, I call them up, I go, hey guys, you must have made a mistake. I'm booked on this flight. They go, oh yeah, Mr. D'Souza, we made a mistake. We'll fix it. But in this case, there's no one to call. There's no one to appeal to. You don't, there's some sort of silent committee that makes these adjudications. You don't know who they are and what basis they do it. They don't feel obliged to provide any explanation. When they do, the explanation borders on the preposterous. You feel like you're in some Kafka-esque trial where you're being informed of charges that bear no resemblance to what you actually did. So all of this, I would argue, feeds conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theories come out of this atmosphere, you may say, of suppression and craziness when your own government is acting in bizarre and incomprehensible ways. At the same time, conspiracy theories are dangerous. Why? Because they make it difficult to separate what's true from what's true, not true. They make you, you might say, believe anything, and that's not a good thing. So this podcast is going to be a way of separating the truth from the fiction. It's not going to flinch from looking at hard truths on our own side. It's going to take a tough look at conservatism, the future of the Republican Party. I feel in some weird way that I was, you know, made to do this. And this seems odd for me to say because I never previously thought of doing a podcast. I mean, for most of my career, I was uh, initially a journalist in my very young days right out of college. Uh, then I joined the Reagan White House. Uh, then I became a scholar at a think tank, the American Enterprise Institute, where I began to write books. And I've now written, gee, 17 or so of them. I also began to speak. Uh, and then in 2012, I made my first movie on Obama. And so between the books and the speeches and the travel 
and the making of the movies. I mean, there was just no way to do a podcast. So the weird thing is the podcast sort of came out of COVID. Uh, COVID shut me down, it locked me up. Uh, my wife Debbie is a bit of a germaphobe, so I was locked up twice, if you know what I mean. And, uh, and then I decided, gee, uh, you know, I'm a little tired of just sitting around and uh, I better do something useful and why not a podcast? And what could be a better time than now? Um, the topics that I'm gonna cover in this podcast are pretty wide. I'm not going to confine myself to just talking about politics. Politics is the focus. But I'm also gonna talk about history uh, and religion and culture and entertainment and ideas. Why? Because the political battle is part of a larger battle and we need to be very aware of that. I also think that it helps you keep your head on straight. You don't become nuts by focusing just on politics. You are part of a wider world, a world of ideas, a world of faith, a world that keeps history, the long-term perspective, a world that penetrates to the very heart of what do we mean by words themselves? What do we mean by truth? This is not going to be a relentlessly negative podcast. Uh, we're depressed enough. Uh, many of us feel a little claustrophobic. We feel like the walls are closing in a little bit. Um, and these feelings are based on real fears. Normally, it's the job of a winning political side to make the losing side feel safe. The left is not doing this. They're making us feel very unsafe. At the same time, I want this podcast to be tough-minded and fun and a little bit of a butt-kicking podcast because butt-kicking really is fun. Ridicule is fun. And the good news about a Biden administration is that there just are going to be an awful lot of butts to kick. Uh, and I'm actually a really good kicker. It's one of my specialties. So this is going to be a podcast where you're going to see um, some people and some ideas savaged. I'm not going to hold back. Uh, I'm going to call it like it is, but it's going to be a smart podcast. I'm not going to call people names. I'm going to expose them for their ideas. I'm going to illuminate their stupidities. I'm going to ridicule them with humor where I can and facts all the way. I also am going to, in this podcast, talk about the way out. I want the podcast to be constructive and the po I want the podcast to be able to see where do we go? What should we do? What should we do collectively as a team, as a Republican party, as conservatives, as patriots, as part of a MAGA movement? What happens to us? But I also want to talk about what you can do. What steps can you take now, practically, to address the situation, to make it better? So this is the overall scheme, if you will, of the podcast. And um, when we come back, we're going to dive into the issue of the second impeachment, the second effort to get Trump. What are they trying to do? More importantly, why? Trump is at the very edge of his term. Why now? Why push forward with this? It seems, it seems so reckless, so you might say unnecessary. But for the left, it is very necessary. And when we return, I will explain. Now, this episode is brought to us by MyPillow. And I want to talk to you about MyPillow and how it's literally changed my life. These pillows are downright amazing. In fact, uh, 
If you have one of these pillows, do not use it while you're watching the podcast. I don't want you to fall asleep. I want you to stay awake. I'm going to do my best to keep you awake, but I don't want Mike Lindell, the founder of MyPillow, to be working against me while you're watching the podcast. So save the pillow for later. Now, these pillows don't go flat. You can wash and dry them as many times as you want. They keep their shape. They're made in the USA, a good thing. And for a limited time, Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow, is offering his premium MyPillows for his lowest price ever. You can get a queen-size premium MyPillow for $29.98, regularly $69.98. That's a $40 savings. King size is only five bucks more. Not only do you get the lowest price ever, $29.98 for a queen size premium, but Mike is extending his 60-day money-back guarantee to March 1st, 2021. So go to MyPillow.com on the radio listeners square and use promo code Dinesh. Promo code Dinesh. You will also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and MyPillow towel sets. Or call 1-800-876-0227 and use promo code Dinesh. House Democrats are today introducing articles of impeachment to force Trump out. They're trying to force Trump out just, you may say, days in which Trump will be forced out automatically. And Trump has already said that he is going peacefully and that he is facilitating an orderly transition. But that is evidently not enough. The impeachment is based on the idea that Trump has supposedly once again committed high crimes and misdemeanors and that he needs to go now. This would really make, I guess, Pence the president for a few days before Biden takes over. Now, how does this impeachment process move? The Democrats only need a majority in the House, which they have. Uh, their majority isn't huge, but it's sufficient and they might even get some Republican votes. Um, there are Republicans, as we all know, who have never liked Trump. And there are Republicans who see this as a good way to give Trump a sort of boot um, on his way out. So I think that the Democrats will be able to get probably fairly easy, easily a majority. And they want to do this fast. They don't even really want it to be seriously discussed or debated. They don't want to prove their case. They feel that their case is, you may say, self-evident. Self-evident evident like the Declaration of Independence. It is a self-evident truth that Trump has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, what crimes and misdemeanors he's committed, we will need to explore. But let me just push forward with the process. It moves, if it's quickly approved by the House, it moves to the Senate. And here is the key point. What happens in the Senate? Now, the Republicans are holding on to a very um, narrow hold on the Senate. It's going to be a 50-50 Senate going into the Biden administration. Um, but 
You can't do this with 50 or 51 votes. You need two-thirds. You need two-thirds of the entire Senate. So the future of Trump in the Senate is in the hands of Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. There's a very interesting article um, by um, Andy McCarthy in the National Review. Uh, it's called Impeachment by the Numbers. And uh, McCarthy begins by talking about the, uh, the Nixon impeachment battle in which Senator Goldwater, I believe it was, went up to Nixon and um, talked to him about resignation. Now, Goldwater, interestingly, didn't ask Nixon to resign. He merely showed Nixon the numbers. He showed Nixon that Nixon's support in the Senate had collapsed uh, in the Republican Party. And Nixon, who was always um, a realist, a real politique guy, a Machiavellian, if you will, Nixon certainly knew how to count, recognized that basically the deal was done. This was not ultimately a matter of should he resign? Did it make sense to resign? Was it, was, did the case have merit? Nixon basically looked at it as a math problem. Um, I don't have the votes. I need to get out of here. And so he did. Now with Trump, McCarthy says, and I wanna quote a couple of his lines because they're so telling. One, in my judgment, he says, there is no way the president could be convicted in a criminal trial. In other words, Trump made no criminal incitement here. Um, this would never survive in any criminal court of law. Uh, McCarthy says, the president was irresponsible in his demagoguery demagoguery. But of course, demagoguery is kind of a feature of political figures, not just presidents. Uh, it's kind of hard. You'd be hard pressed to say which politician has never been a demagogue. Obama was a massive demagogue. Um, so demagoguery in a democracy goes with the territory. Plato could have told you that. It's right there in the, in the republic. There is no evidence, Andy McCarthy writes, much less proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump intended to instigate the Battle of Capitol Hill. First of all, I think this is a ridiculous phrase, the Battle of Capitol Hill, really, Andy. Uh, but nevertheless, he says, look, Trump didn't instigate it. Uh, he did not want anyone to be physically injured, let alone killed. And then he goes on to say, moreover, that Trump didn't even call for people to storm the Capitol. Trump merely talked about people coming to Washington, getting fired up. I'm gonna quote some of Trump's own words a little bit later. But as this article moves on, it seems to be moving toward a, well, Trump may not have the numbers, but there's no basis for this. But Andy McCarthy concludes that Trump should resign. And this is really what gave me a little bit of a body blow, because I respect Andy McCarthy, and I was thinking to myself, wait a minute, you too, Andy? At too, Andy? As Caesar said to Brutus, really? Why? Would, let's take what Trump did by your own account. Trump engaged in irresponsible demagoguery. He got people stoked up. And those people then, out of an overabundance of enthusiasm, some of them did some bad things. Let's just switch it up. Let's say the position was exactly the same, but it was Obama. Obama got people fired up. And these people began to march on the Capitol and some of them entered the Capitol. We'll get into how. Do you see Andy McCarthy demanding that Obama resign? No. 
So what I'm getting at here is I understand that the left is jumping on this. It's a moment of opportunity. They're salivating over it. We finally can drive the stake into Trump. And in my opinion, this driving the stake into Trump is really aimed at 2024. They want to make sure he can't run again. That's the point of the impeachment. It is to drive a stake into Trump in such a way that he is ultimately banished to the outer sectors, to pariah status in American political life. They're scared of Trump. They're scared of Trump in a way that they have never been scared of another Republican. They weren't even this scared of Reagan, and they were plenty scared of Reagan. So the question I want to raise, and I might only end up raising it, I'll be, have to dive into it more, is why are Republicans buying into this? What is it about the Republican psyche that is so strange, so perhaps twisted, that it embraces the accusations of the other side, applying a double standard to itself? This is a real mystery, and we can't really just let it go. We have to dive into it. So when we come back, I'm going to dive into it a little bit more. We'll be right back. I want to get into what Trump said or did, this so-called uh, instigation of insurrection that Trump supposedly caused. Uh, but before I do that, I want to comment on um, uh, conservative and Republican psychology, because it's a little dismaying to see, first of all, conservatives. I mean, dyed-in-the-wool conservatives like Andy McCarthy uh, calling for Trump to resign, railing against Trump. Uh, with a real genuine indignation that's not feigned. This is not somewhat uh, strategic. Uh, and it's not just McCarthy. It's the National Review, by and large. It's the conservative think tanks, which are sort of, if, they are, if they're not outraged, they're deadly silent. It's the Republican elected leaders who are silent. So what's going on with these people? Now, I think in some cases, and I think this applies to Andy McCarthy, um, the right is the law and order party. McCarthy was a former prosecutor, so they have very low tolerance for any kind of lawbreaking. And I would say that this um, kind of uh, virtue extends to such a point that they're willing to impose a double standard on their own side. They're willing to say, we must hold ourselves to a higher standard. It doesn't matter if the left uh, stormed the Supreme Court. It wouldn't matter if they did it. But if we do it, we have no tolerance for it. We should know better. We're the better people. And this is a constant refrain on the right, and one that actually bears careful examination. How do, you, how do you get into a fight with another side where you hold yourself to a different standard than the other side, and you knife members of your own side for falling short of those standards that the other side gleefully has to do little more than point out to you? That's the first issue I just want to raise here. I think there's a deeper psychology, though, and that is that the Republicans, in a sense, have become content to have a party uh, in which certain privileges are distributed and no new people come in. In other words, for the traditional Republicans, the MAGA types are not only expanding the ranks, but changing the rules. I've uh, grown up with these 
uh, traditional Republican types, particularly the type of young writers that populate the think tanks and the sort of Washington Republican establishment. You got to realize who these guys are. They came to D.C. right out of Princeton or Tufts when they were 18 years old. They've been writing op-eds. Um, and then they um, ate too much linguine and drank too much wine. Um, and now they're overweight and they're disillusioned. Uh, but they've sort of become swamp creatures. They like D.C. Um, but the rules of the game have changed on them. They look around and they suddenly realize the center of gravity in the Republican Party has moved toward the Trumpsters. Trump is the one who electrifies the crowd and none of them. Uh, even on the writer front and the social media front, you have these guys who have like 4,500 followers on Twitter and they see a newcomer like Terrence Williams, some guy who, wow, that guy didn't even go to college. Wow, that guy came off out of an orphanage. He's got 600,000 followers on Twitter. He's doing comedy shows and filling crowds. And when I show up to speak, basically everyone asks, who is that guy on the podium? So there is a tremendous amount here, I think, of that very ugly human quality, just sheer envy, uh, cultural superiority, snobbery, embarrassment, directed at these new Trumpsters. Who's Candace Owens? Where, what, where do her degrees come from? What gives her the right to speak from? What think tank has she paid her bona fides in? And so on, and so on, and so on. So there's a lot of this kind of scrabble going on on the right. And I think ultimately the Republican Party really will really need to find a way forward in all this. Why? Because we need traditional Republicans. I don't think the Republican Party can be only MAGA. Uh, people say 75 million people voted for Trump. No. 75 million people voted for Trump because he's a Republican. 75 million people would not have voted for Trump if he ran on an independent uh, ticket. Um, MAGA needs the traditional Republican Party. We can't have a party that's solely a party of the working class. We need the suburbs. Uh, we need the Georgia suburban soccer mom and housewife. Uh, we don't want to alienate that person. But conversely, traditional Republicans don't have enough to win either. They need the Trumpsters. So there's a lot of work to be done in thinking through and figuring out how do we create a new sense of going forward for the Republican Party. Now, when we come back, we're going to be talking about what happened in Washington, D.C. What role did Trump play? Why did people go? Did they go to foment an insurrection? And if so, where were their insurrectionist tools? Did they go there to cause terrorism? They've been called terrorists, even by some people on our side. What were their weapons of terror? Where were their box cutters? Where were their scabbards to behead people? What were, their, what were the weapons that they carried with them to seize the capital by force and drive the people defending it uh, away? Uh, when we come back, we're gonna talk about all that. But before that, I wanna talk about MyPillow and how it is awesome. Mike Lindell is awesome and he knows how to make a pillow. He knows how to do a lot of other things. He knows how to speak at rallies. He's a fearless guy. He's a likable guy. But most of all, he's a guy who is a very successful and competent entrepreneur. He makes pillows that don't go flat. You can wash and dry them as much as you want. They keep their shape. They're made in the USA. And he's given you a deal. You can get a queen size premium MyPillow for $29.98. It's normally $69.98, 40 bucks off. Uh, king size pillows are only $5 more. So this is awesome. 
And um, all you have to do is this, go to mypillow.com, click on the radio listeners square and use promo code Dinesh. So click on the radio listeners square, promo code Dinesh. You'll also get deep discounts on other MyPillow products, the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattresses, mattress topper, and MyPillow towel sets. Or call 800-876-0227 and use promo code Dinesh. In this segment, we're going to do the anatomy of an insurrection. Insurrection requires insurrectionists, and or at least alleged insurrectionists, the people who supposedly went to D.C. plotting the overthrow of the U.S. government. Yes, really. Um, we have one of those D.C. Uh, goers, a young woman, um, a student at the University of Texas, her name is Addie Schlenker. She was in D.C. together with a whole bunch of other people. And she's here to talk about what happened, why she went, what she saw, what Trump said, and what this whole big shebang was really all about. So, Addie Schlenker, welcome to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast. Great to have you. Um, let me ask you this. Um, what made you want to go to D.C.? Why, why did you go? So I went to D.C. Um, very last minute. Um, I went because I heard that so many other people were going and I knew that I believed, but that there was nothing we could do about it. So I think it was stolen. Now, you went to protest the steal of the election. What did you expect to achieve in D.C.? What did you want to see happen? So... I had hoped that more senators and more congressmen um, would stand up in question of the electors that were slated. Um, however, obviously that didn't happen unless people ended up uh, standing up and, and objecting to it. So you wanted your presence there to be a way of um, expressing support for Trump and perhaps motivating Republican senators and congressmen to vote the right way as you saw it. Um, now, uh, how did you get to the rally itself? What was the atmosphere like? How did you how did you land on the on the mall or wh wherever Trump spoke? Right, it was amazing getting there that morning before all of the horrible stuff broke out that we heard about. Um, it was one of the most patriotic things I had ever seen. In fact, I got up at five a.m. with a bunch of other people in a hotel that in Virginia practically filled with Trump supporters, got on the Metro at 6 a.m., which we ended up calling the Trump train because it was filled with Trump supporters only, and arrived at 7 a.m. Um, in front of the White House near the Ellipse, and it was swarming with people completely dressed in red, white, and blue, and flags, um, just happy to be there. So these were not, I mean, as you saw these guys, they weren't planning some sort of takeover of the Capitol or the White House, were they? What what were they there for? Were they there for the same reason you were? Yes, I think everyone's the few people that we saw break in. Um, however, those people were not similar to any of the people I had talked to in the crowds. Um, everyone was talking and chatting um, in the crowds, and as people were crowding around the screens and finding their place, no one there flag around in hopes that someone would hear them. So you get to the Trump speech and Trump begins to, to talk. Now, I want to read a couple of things that Trump said um, because 
if Trump was inciting insurrection, he would need to say inciting things. Um, and I'm quoting here from a USA Today article that is talking about impeachment. He, Trump is quoted saying, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down to the Capitol and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Very Trumpian statement. Because you'll never take, your, take back your country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Now, I don't read that to imply any kind of takeover of the Capitol or storming of the Capitol. Did you or anyone around you hear it that way? No, of course not. And of course, strength that he's referring to is not physical strength. He's referring to courage because it took a lot of courage for, I think, everyone there to go stand and say, President Trump, we support you. We took off of our jobs today. We paid all this money to stay in a hotel to get a flight to get here. We bought flags. We bought Trump gear. And, you know, friends and family, we're going to turn on the people who went to go to this event, myself included. And so that's the strength he was referring to. Everyone there knew that. Here's Trump. Um, and this, it seems to me, cuts against the idea of incitement. He goes, and I'm quoting him again from the ABC transcript. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Direct quote from Trump. So far from saying storm the Capitol, Trump appears to be saying, and he seems to know that people are gonna to go to the Capitol, but he's saying you're going to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Did you hear him say that? And is that how you took it? Yes, I heard him say those words, and I think that's exactly how everyone there took it. Um, of course, people wouldn't be led to believe that because the media only showed the people who stormed inside the Capitol for the large part, but there were hundreds of thousands of people outside just minding their own business, just trying to get Congress's attention by standing there. That's it. Now, you walked over with the crowd to the Capitol. You didn't enter the Capitol. You didn't storm the Capitol. What did you see in front of you? What was going on right in front of you? Right. So um, as we walked over, I saw really patriotic people uh, singing songs, Sweet Caroline, waving flags, um, being, they were joint. Um, and then as we arrived at the Capitol, I saw there were some people on statues, which I thought was kind of uncharacteristic. And I mentioned something to my friend. He thought it was slightly uncharacteristic as well. Um, you mean we you're talking now about large monuments and statues and people that climbed on top of those? Is that what you mean when you they say were, people? They were, yes, they were just on them. Um, no vandalism. They were, I think they were just trying to be above the crowd. Um, there were so many people there. I wouldn't find that surprising. Um, I did not see any police anywhere near anyone. I didn't see any barricades. I saw people on the steps of the Capitol and I saw maybe 10 police come out about 20 minutes later. Um, but not, not really to stop anyone from going any further or anything like that. Do you think that the police were simply unprepared and sort of crumbled and people were able to storm the Capitol? Or do you think that in some sense there was no uh, barrier whatever and people basically in effect strolled their way in? How did, they, how did they breach what is thought to be, along with the White House, two of the most impregnable fortresses, you might say, of American government. How, how, do, how does someone get in there unauthorized? 
it had to have been both, right? There's, it's such high security. It couldn't have been, and we've seen the videos, that people weren't just being let in, uh, or that I saw myself. Um, and Mayor Bowser, you know, on Tuesday, the day before, said she didn't need any reinforcements, which was just, um, it was completely irresponsible because she knew how many people were going to show up. 10 police isn't going to stop nearly a million people. Now, did you ever see the, uh, I mean, the, the photo that I have to admit kind of made me chuckle um, is this ridiculous so-called Buffalo man, this man in this weird outfit who really looks more like an actor than an insurrectionist. And this was the guy who was actually taking photos uh, right in the Capitol. I, I got to tell you a, a little bit about him. Apparently, his name is Jacob Chansley. He's 33 years old. He is an actor. He's a real actor, uh, but apparently a failed actor uh, who has been dressing up like this and showing up at various events. He lives with his mom. Um, and, um, you know, when I looked at him, I was thinking, am I watching the American Revolution or am I watching the American Revolution as depicted in the play Hamilton? Because I think for this Buffalo man, at least, and perhaps for others, this wasn't a real insurrection. It certainly wasn't a real coup. I mean, it almost seemed like it was showtime. Did you get a sense that these people were putting on a sort of theatrical event? They weren't really trying to take over the US government, were they? Were they that, could anyone be that stupid? You would think that if they were trying to take over the US government, they would have brought weapons um, or that they would have told everyone, come inside the Capitol. But there was hundreds of thousands of us outside of the Capitol. Not only that, but the people that went inside the Capitol um, looked like almost they were joking, right? Everyone had a smile on their face. Um, people were just casually strolling around the rotunda, allowed in, um, and no one was stopping them. That's that's the that's the biggest thing for me is, you know, if people went inside and wanted to take over the Capitol, you think they would act very, very differently. Well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to minimize what happened. You, you This was the, the, the storming, the taking in any way of this, precious institution of the government cannot be excused. Uh, but I did notice that even the guy who was making off with the Nancy Pelosi podium, it's almost like he had a mischievous smile on his face as if to say, guess what I'm doing, check me out. You know, there was a playful quality to it, which again is, does not, I think, comprehend the seriousness of the situation. If someone goes into a, uh, an institution like the Capitol, to some degree, I have to say, they should expect that they are putting their themselves in danger, perhaps even their life in danger. And we now know that five people did die, uh, and I'm gonna go into that. If I can't get to it today, I'll talk about it uh, soon. Who died in the podcast and, 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 and what happened to them? But what I'm getting at here is that what you're saying, I think, is obvious. There was no coup, there was no insurrection. These were people, probably people with a lot of bottled up anger and frustration um, who wanted to make themselves heard. Is, would you say that's a correct interpretation? Absolutely. Um, and another point is, is that I think all the people outside, we can't be associated so much with people inside because no one had cell reception. So we didn't even know that anyone was inside or else we probably would have left or would have tried to calm down the outside situation considerably. Because even outside climbing on the building, I had the option to do that if I wanted to. I didn't want to because I didn't feel that that was 
the right thing, even though no police were stopping us, even though no one was guiding us, telling us that this was not the right thing to do. In fact, I turned to my friend and I said, why are people, you know, climbing and why does this feel so uh, filled with adrenaline? And he said, this is what happens when you steal an election from, you know, 74 million people. But I think it was also that we had no idea none at all what was going on inside or else outside would have or what was going on inside or else outside would have looked considerably different. So from this, I draw the conclusion that however seriously we have to take the actual incursion into the Capitol, it is completely irresponsible to equate those actions with the larger, vastly larger crowd outside, which was there just to show support for Trump, which was doing what Trump said, which is peacefully and patriotically marching, that didn't even know that this was going on. So the effort to demonize the whole crowd, let alone the effort to de demonize the entire MAGA movement, the effort to demonize everybody who ever voted for Trump, everybody who ever associated with Trump, Ted Cruz must resign. All of this seems to be a sleight of hand that is trying to take the actions of a few and dump the culpability for them on the president of the United States and a whole bunch of people who frankly didn't do that and didn't incite that. Thank you very much, Addy. Thank you for joining us. And I want to talk about um, a problem that seems to have arisen out of the insurrection, um, but one that has taken on a, a life of its own. And this is a, a rampant explosion of digital censorship, Dig digital censorship that in no way confines itself to the uh, malefactors uh, of DC, um, but includes, once again, Trump, and includes the censorship of really millions of us um, and um, has huge social implications. I would say not just American implications, but worldwide, worldwide implications for the future of a free society. Why? Because this is the way we communicate now. It's sort of like, um, you know, 75 years ago, if you decide to cut off people's phone service or uh, a century ago, a century and a half ago, you prevent people from using the railroads or communicating by telegraph. I mean, that is the means of communication. And to deprive people of doing that is ultimately to silence them in a very fundamental way. So I understand that these digital institutions are not government entities, but they are, you may say, supervisors of the, of the public square. So you have a kind of an irony here because the public square is very open at the ground level. We can all participate. We can all, it empowers the ordinary guy. But the people who run this, the people who run the communication railroad, if I can use that term, that's a handful of guys, like five guys. Um, and they control the discourse, the rules of the discourse, and they can kick people off. I mean, imagine if AT&T could come on and say, you know what, we've been listening to your calls and uh, we, we find some hate speech that you made when you called your neighbor um, or your, your cousin, you were a little rude to them. And so therefore we're restricting you only two calls a week from now on. And if you do this again, you're gonna be permanently banned even though you paid your bill. Imagine the madness of that. Imagine what people would shut down AT&T overnight. But this is exactly what these digital companies do. Now, normally when crazy stuff happens, um, they never give you a reason. 
one of the very interesting scenes in Kafka's The Trial is that Joseph K. is under indictment. Uh, he's under arrest, but he can't find out for what. They won't even tell him. Oh, we're drawing up the papers. Oh, you'll find out eventually. Oh, it takes time. Oh, this is the process. They don't tell him. Why? Because tyranny likes to come in a disguise, hidden, uh, not revealing its true face. But interestingly with Twitter, when they banned Trump, permanently banned Trump, they said why. And this actually is great because it gives us a real window into how these people think. I mean, you, you look at a guy like uh, Jack Dorsey and you're like, man, this is some character, you know, where'd he come from? But even more important than what he looks like is, is how he thinks, a window into his mind and, and the Twitter mind, if you can call it that. So let's turn to Twitter for a moment because they banned Trump permanently on the basis of two tweets. I'm going to read the tweet and then I'm going to read what Twitter says about it. Here's the first one. The 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first, and make America great again will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. This is utterly benign. This is Trump boilerplate. What he's saying is that the America First movement, the MAGA movement, he might exit the stage, but MAGA will go on. They're going to hang in there. Twitter. This is Twitter's reading. The use of the words American patriots to describe some of his supporters is being interpreted. Notice the passive tense. They mean they're interpreting it. Is being interpreted as support for those committing violent acts at the U.S. Capitol. Really? How? Let's continue. Twitter. The mention of his supporters having a, quote, giant voice long into the future and that they will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape or form is being interpreted, again, the passive voice, as further indication that President Trump does not plan to facilitate an orderly transition and instead that he plans to continue to support, empower and shield those who believe he won the election. Now, Trump has said the opposite. I will facilitate an orderly transaction. There's no reason not to believe him. There's nothing in the quote that implies that he's going to block the transition. Yet that's Twitter's reading. Here's Trump's second tweet, even more inoffensive. To all those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. That's it. You can read or make of that what you will. Trump seems to be saying, I don't want to degrade myself. That's one way to read it. Um, I don't want to make a spectacle of it. I don't want people to keep reading into how he, how he looks, how I look. I, I think it's easier if I just don't go. And that's it. But here's Twitter. This tweet may also serve as encouragement to those potentially considering violent acts at the inauguration, that the inauguration would be a safe target as he would not be attending. It's almost as if Trump is, according to Twitter, signaling to his supporters that they should plan violence because, gee, Biden will be there and guess what? Trump won't. Now, really, is this an even reasonable or plausible way to read that tweet? No. So what you see here, and it's very Kafka-esque, is the whole notion that you're guilty before you've even been charged. You're guilty from the outset. You don't have to say or do anything and you're guilty anyway. They're just looking for a pretext. And the point here is that it really shows that the real tyrant is not Donald Trump. Really, 
If he was a tyrant, you think he'd be silenced right now on social media? You think he'd be flayed on every platform every second of every day for four years? No. The tyrannical mind is not on the part of Trump's. It's on the part of Twitter and digital media in general. One of the things that distinguishes um, this podcast and in fact my whole way of looking at America and the world uh, is that I'm an immigrant. I grew up in Mumbai, India. I came to America at the age of 17 uh, as an exchange student with $500 in my pocket. And of course I've lived most of my life and certainly all my adult life uh, in America. But I still feel, I still remember that sense of uh, wonder, exuberance, anticipation when I first landed here. And, I, and that shapes my politics. Um, and what also shapes my politics is I would call it the insider-outsider perspective. Uh, I bring to my writing and movies a kind of a cosmopolitan outlook, which you'll see on this podcast. It just reflects who I am. I know America certainly from the inside. But I also know there's a big world out there and there's another way to look at America with almost anthropological precision from the outside looking in. Now, amazingly, my wife Debbie, sitting here, is also an immigrant, but a sort of an immigrant, I should say, because your mom, Debbie, is from the Rio Grande Valley. She's Mexican-American from Texas. Um, But your dad was Venezuelan. Yes. So you are um, half Venezuelan and half Mexican-American. And you came to the United States at the age of 10 speaking no English. And I think you too, like me, have this sort of dual perspective of looking at America, in which you're fully American, but a little bit of your heart, I have to say, is in Venezuela and is thinking right now about Venezuela and America. Would that be right? It would be right. And and so in my scope, because I've always been very interested in politics, um, was looking at, at what happened in Venezuela, how the demise of, of Venezuela occurred, and putting in a little bit of, of that into the politics and, my, and maybe my scope here in America. And early on... Okay, but before you get into this... Yes. Uh, I want you to tell, because... This is our first show and people are sort of meeting us, talking together like this for the (laughs) first time. Um, How we met had a lot to do with your involvement in Venezuelan politics. So how did you, how did did we meet? Tell people. Yeah, yeah. So I've been doing, I I was doing presentations uh, to whoever would listen, uh, Republican women's clubs. I actually was a president of a Republican women's club in Houston, in the Houston area. And and I decided that I would do a presentation showing the parallels between the Venezuelan left and the American left. And I, I really captured a lot of people's attention because they had no idea just how close the parallels were. They had absolutely no idea. So I think I opened a lot of eyes locally and, and throughout, you know, Texas. And so I was doing this this presentation and I came across 
a bunch of videos from Bill Ayers, you know, the domestic terrorist Bill Ayers. Friend the Weather of, Underground. Weather Underground. Friend bomb of, the Pentagon. Bomb yes, the, that, the Pentagon. that same one. Um, he was down in Venezuela touting the education system in Venezuela. And he had, a, you know, a, a lot of videos on it. And I knew that you knew him and that you had debated him. So I just wanted to give you those videos to see what you could do with those videos. I had no idea. Um, so that's that's how we met. So I'll pick up the story from there. So Debbie sends me all these videos, and there were like 12 of them. I just debated Bill Ayers on the Megyn Kelly show. and um, But I then contacted you, Debbie, and I said, hey, I'm trying to get my America film into high schools and schools in Texas. Do you happen to know any school superintendents who can help me to do that? And so that's how we met. You actually, you sent the videos to me. I actually had my own agenda, which is to get my right. movie. And I have to say, you knew nothing about Venezuela. Nothing. <laughs> until I came along. Yeah. And you were actually very surprised. I thought you knew everything, but there were a lot of things about Venezuela that you didn't know. And you were surprised when you found out just how close in ideology I have to are. admit that in our early courtship mm -hmm. I was I had other interests and <laughs> Debbie said things like well you know you, you don't seem to be all that interested in Venezuela and I said well I, I know I didn't take you up on Venezuela I actually went for the Venezuelan <laughs> uh, and uh, so in any event we've been now married we'll be married five years in March and yes. it's glad been, you remember that uh, oh yes <laughs> So, um, yes. But let's turn back now to, yes. to Venezuela and this sort of sense that you had from a while ago about the parallels between Venezuela and, and America. Now, I want to focus on one of those, mm -hmm. and that is voter fraud. Now, in the new movie, uh, Trump Card, which, by the way, is playing in your home. I mean, you basically get it on all kinds of platforms from Amazon Prime um, to Apple iTunes, Google, many others. Um, and trumpcardthemovie.com, that's the website. But by the way, when we were making Trump Card, we were tracing some of the parallels between Venezuelan socialism and the American left. And you propose that we add another one, voter fraud. Yes. I say somewhat to my chagrin <laughs> yes. that when we talked about it, well, let's, let's think about this. What, what, what I said, what you said was you told me that in America, voter fraud generally occurs before the voting. In other yes. words, it is bringing illegals, it's getting yes. dead people on the rolls, it's, it's sending out the mail-in ballots. You, but you said in Venezuela, mm -hmm. the fraud occurs after people vote. It's in the vote counting. The counters themselves control the machines, the, the machines yes, yes. and the people who yes. announce the vote, they're yes. in charge. So. I thought at that time that this is not a real parallel because it seems to be yes. there might be voter fraud in both cases, but it's, it takes a different anatomy. So yes, and for those people that haven't seen Trump Card or have seen Trump Card, uh, we did film this. We did talk about voter fraud, and so here's a clip of that uh, so that you can see it. It's a deleted scene. It wasn't in the in the actual movie, but we we were going to use it and then Dinesh was like, no, that's not really a parallel. So there you go. Little did I know. Little did you know, know it all here, knew it. it. And so anyway, so uh, so here's that clip. 
What about election rigging? You may say fixing the system and using the government against political opponents. Does that sound familiar in Venezuela? Oh, very, <laughs> very familiar. How people, so? well, people in Venezuela vote only once. Usually, they have, st they get stamped. You know, when they vote, the rigging comes when they count the votes. But even before that, they're very good at enticing people to vote for the party that they want them to vote for. So they'll go to a very poor part of town and they'll bus people in by, by the thousands to vote and they promise them all sorts of goods. They promise them uh, microwaves, they promise them refrigerators, phones, all sorts of things. So it's very familiar, isn't it? And I think that's one of the reasons the last election many Venezuelans said, we're not going to vote. Because they say, why would I present my opinion in a place that is not going to matter, giving more, more reasons to the government to say, look, all these people voting. So we're back talking about Venezuela and the United States and how are you feeling now as you see all this craziness going on around us? Um, are we headed down the Venezuelan road? How do you read the landscape now yeah. given what you know? Um, and we've sometimes talked about this. You say that you have a little PTSD uh, traumatization from having gone through it once. Are you feeling a little sense of deja vu? Well, I feel like that person on the beach that knows that there's a tsunami coming because the water is receding and everybody's like clueless. They have no idea. They're, they're watching the, you know, the fish on the sand and they're like, oh, what's this, right? And that is a sign that a tsunami is headed our way. And that is how I feel because I have seen the parallels and I know that one of the ways that the left won in Venezuela is they took away people's right to speak. And I see it while, you know, Twitter and, and Facebook are not, and Amazon are not of the state. They are working exactly like the state worked in Venezuela. Yeah, so pause for a moment. In, in, in Venezuela, it was Hugo Chavez and the Chavistas operating through the instrument of the state we have now in America something even more bizarre, which is private institutions that are in collaboration, including the media. I mean, one of the things that to me was so striking about the, the Biden scandal was how do you coordinate media suppression across thousands of media entities? This isn't Joseph Goebbels saying, I control the press office, nothing will go out. No, this was media institutions and journalists independently saying, you know what? We don't want to cover this. Now, how do you pull that off? Why, why doesn't enterprising reporters jump forward and go, listen, if those idiots don't want to cover it, I'll cover it. I'll become Walter Cronkite. I'll become the biggest reporter in the country. But even that guy knew his life would be destroyed if he did that. So there is a sense of intellectual suffocation going on throughout the country. And coordination. And coordination. Because they all seem to be saying the same thing from the same script which is very scary because when we lose our voice, we, we lose everything. So what you're saying is that this is not a normal uh, pendulum swing of the government because let's think about it. We've both been in America since the 70s. We've, we've lived through Reagan 
and Bush. Then we saw Clinton come in for eight years. It then swung back to Bush. It then swung to Obama. So we've lived through democratic administrations. We've lived through the normal uh, alternation of government. In fact, American politics has been divided for 40 years. Yeah. What's yeah. different now? What, what makes you think that this is, this is not that? This is very different uh, because I recognize the rhetoric. I, I remember when Hugo Chavez came in and lied about being a socialist. What did he say? He said he wasn't a socialist. He said he was, he was not going to nationalize industry. He didn't want anybody to think he was a monster. So, so people were like, okay, I'll give him a chance. My, my own grandparents voted for Hugo Chavez in 1998 because they believed him. They thought he was going to be a different kind of politician. And so little by little, he started nationalizing, he started expropriating, he started taking away businesses, he started shutting people up so that they no longer could say anything against, them, against him. And he, he divided Venezuela. In fact, many of the Venezuelans on the other side of the, of the spectrum, not the socialists, but the more conservative Venezuelans, now do not trust the opposition because the opposition self-destructed and they were never able to fight back against Hugo Chavez. They were fighting each other. They were fighting each other. So there's no unified conservative voice in Venezuela to counter what has happened since Hugo Chavez and his death and then Maduro. And so the elections from the very beginning were fraudulent, but but anyone that spoke out against the fraud was shut down immediately. They couldn't talk about it anymore. And not only that, they were put on this list where uh, they were, you know, they were basically like X'd out of society and they were no longer relevant in society. Many people fled Venezuela, but you know what, honey, we don't have anywhere to go. We cannot allow this to, to happen here in America. And unfortunately, because of the way that social media has shut us down, has shut our voices down, um, it's just, you know, like I said, he, he lied about being a socialist. And then he came in and there was nothing else anyone could do anymore. They were, you know, the, the conservative voice was marginalized. I feel like our conservative voice is marginalized. Their other, their, their, their right wing or center right wing party was destroyed I feel like our party is being destroyed. Our conservative Republican Party is splintering off. People don't trust it anymore. And a lot of Venezuelans don't vote. And a lot of Venezuelans stopped voting because they said, how does it matter that I go to the polls and vote when I know what the outcome is going to be? And I fear that here in America. I really do. And I just, I encourage everybody not to disengage because that's what Venezuelans did. They disengaged and the left won. We can't allow that here. Well, let me sum up uh, for today in this way um, by talking really about um, what the American system of government is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a system that is driven by ma majority rule, yes. But majority rule qualified by minority rights. The reason we have a Bill of Rights, a very important part of the Constitution, is the Bill of Rights basically delineates the space in which the majority cannot go. The majority can rule, but within prescribed limits. And so we have a right, for example, to free speech. 
we have a right to conscience. We have a Second Amendment right to own a gun. Uh, we have a right to not have our homes and our cars invaded, a right against unreasonable search and seizure. We have all these rights, equal rights under the law. And the majority, although the ruler in a democracy, does not have the power or shouldn't have the power to trample or trespass on these rights. I think part of what you're saying is that the left is taking a certain relish in the fact that not only do they have the Congress and the Senate and the presidency imminently, but they also have the right to tell us what we can say. And they have the right to tell us what we can read. And they have the right to tell us what, um, they have the right to control the levers of communication in the society. This is a terrifying and idea. They and they don't want competition. They, they don't, don't want competition. They don't want us to go somewhere else and, and talk about uh, our, you know, our feelings or about what's going on or like-minded people. So, I mean, look what, what, look what they've done. Let's talk about Parler yeah. for a minute. Because, yeah. because what to me is really creepy about this is that the left would say, you know, uh, Twitter's a private company, Facebook's private, they can do whatever they want. If you don't like it, Dinesh, go somewhere else. Okay, so there's a new alternative Twitter called Parler, and then Parler is hit by a sort of three-pronged attack. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like it. First, Google, then Apple, and then Amazon. In fact, it goes from one disturbing thing to an even more disturbing thing because Google basically drops the Parler app, then Apple, which basically has an app store of all kinds of apps. Apple basically goes, you can't have an app on Apple, boom. Uh, and then Amazon, which has the server company that, that hosts Parler, pulls the server out from one of them and Parler is literally, quote, off the air. So yes. what that means is it's not only that they're saying go someplace else, create your own channel, but they're going to they're saying we not only have political power, but we have enough cultural and corporate power to prevent you from having any channel. We're going to shut you down no matter what. Exactly. You we are going to put a tape around your mouth. Hugo Chavez did that to any station, radio station, TV station that opposed him. He shut them down. Let me leave you with this thought um, for today, and that is that um, we think of free speech as being important because it is the um, root, the means, the pathway to truth, and it is. Our institutions wouldn't really function without it. Think of it, you can't, have, you can't arrive at an academic pursuit of truth without free discussion. You can't scientifically test hypotheses and develop theories if you don't have an atmosphere of free exchange of ideas. Our legal institutions would collapse if you couldn't have the adversary system of law. One guy makes the case, the prosecution makes the case, the defense gets to say the other side. If you could shut up the other side, our whole legal system would become a show trial. It would become a charade. So when you read John Stuart Mill, when you read the champions of free speech, they emphasize this aspect of freedom of speech. This is why we need free speech. But I want to add a second one, which is very rarely, I don't know if I've ever seen it really discussed in detail, and that is that free speech diffuses political extremism. It is not a cause of violence, it is a way of providing an alternative to violence. Why? 
Because when people feel frustrated, when they feel even paranoid, when they feel angry, free speech is a way to blow off steam. We all know in normal life, if you get to yell at somebody and say, you did this or you did that to me, you were wrong in doing this, uh, and then you go, wow, I got that off my chest. You know what? I feel better. I, uh, the, the, the words allow me to express the feeling and the feeling then isn't looking for some other uh, more dangerous channel to then vent itself through action or takeovers or storming this or knocking down that. And by the way, the left has been doing a lot of knocking down of its own. They've been doing a lot of violence and the violence has been defended and approved on their side. Our side doesn't do that. And so I guess that makes us better people. But the question I'll leave you with is, is it the case that in being better people, we will lose the fight to others who are less scrupulous, less principled, and far more vicious than we would ever dream of being? Thank you for watching. This is Dinesh D'Souza. See you next time. This episode is sponsored by MyPillow, and uh, I got to give you some details about MyPillow, but before I do, I want to turn to Debbie, who has been actually using MyPillow, and get your honest, which is the only take I get from you, uh, you like the pillow. I love the pillow. I, I have to say, I am menopausal, pre-menopausal, and I have not been able to sleep for a very long time. I wake up at 2.30 in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. I just cannot get a full night's rest. And I started trying Mike's Pillows from MyPillow.com, and let me tell you, I sleep like a baby. I sleep through the night. Uh, so I kind of call him Magic Mike, but not... Not, not, in, not in the movie Not that sense. kind of magic, Mike, but his pillow is amazing, and I'm able to get some rest, and I can't thank him enough for making a pillow like that for someone like me. These are pillows that won't go flat. You can wash and dry them any, as many times as you want. They're made in the USA. For a limited time, you can get a queen-size premium my pillow for $29.98. It's regularly $69.98, 40 bucks off. The king size is only $5 more. So go to MyPillow.com, MyPillow.com, and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code Dinesh. You'll get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the, including the Giza Dream Sheets, the MyPillow mattress, topper, and MyPillow towel sets. Or you can call 800-876-0227 and use promo code Dinesh. Dinesh.